0: I'll explain a little more to you about meditation. It is a subject about which most people know either nothing or very little. That's not surprising because it's a latecomer in the Western society. It's not been around for very long. In fact, when I started teaching meditation about 15 years ago, it wasn't even considered to be uh, quite um, safe or um, not to be quite nice. It, was, it had a sort of a, a connotation about it as if it was something weird. Well, that has uh, meanwhile abated and it's not considered to be so weird anymore but this is a very short time span, so most people know practically nothing about it. And um, what we can read about it is also limited, first of all because there are not that many books about it, secondly because not so many are available uh, in the West, and also because the book doesn't answer any questions. And the written word does not have the same impact as the spoken word. This is very interesting because if it wasn't that way, we wouldn't need a single school teacher anymore. We could do it all by closed-circuit television. It would be perfectly feasible in our technological society. wouldn't need a single human teacher anymore in a school. But it just isn't the same thing. You have to have the person behind the word. And this is also the reason why when the Buddha spoke two and a half thousand years ago to people just like ourselves, maybe dressed differently, but otherwise exactly the same, uh, some people became enlightened just by listening to one discourse. Well, that was the Buddha speaking. Today, that doesn't happen. There isn't anybody like that speaking. But it isn't the word itself that got these people enlightened because we can repeat his words. They're written down. We can learn them by heart and repeat them. Wouldn't make a slightest bit of difference to anybody. On the contrary, wouldn't, wouldn't even sound good. It's what comes behind the word that matters. I was talking to a woman here in Australia once who does, communication workshops, and she told me that they have found out that the spoken word is only 7% of our communication, that the other 93% are the feeling behind the word, which takes up the greatest percentage. Then, of course, body language, facial language, and tone of voice but these are even minor compared to the feeling that comes behind the word from the personality or person, I should say, that's speaking them. And therefore, it is important if we take meditation seriously, if we really want to practice it uh, as a serious um, spiritual practice in our lives, that we know as much about it as possible, for the simple reason that not only the guidelines are important. I mean, the guidelines I gave already last night. You can now sit and watch your breath as long as you wish. But we need to know what our experiences mean. We have to have the understood experience. If we don't have that, we are not having any benefits see, the understood experience means that we join heart to mind. And if we don't join those two aspects of ourselves together, we're unbalanced, we're imbal- imbalanced. We don't have the balance of, our, of both of our faculties. And if we have the mind aspect overbalanced, then we intellectualize. And that intellectualization then lacks the heart quality which changes this this intellectualization into wisdom. There can only be wisdom if both are together. Now, if it's only the heart quality, we we have emotionalism without rationalization behind it. And with that, we go overboard on our feelings and do not have the ability to understand what's actually happening. If we over, go overboard on our feelings, we can compare this to being in an ocean where the waves are high. And if we get under those waves, all we see is the water that of the, which these waves consist. But if the waves smoothen out again, we've got a placid water, then we can see through that water to the bottom and actually understand what's going on. So, what it all boils down to is the formula of purification of emotions brings clarification of thought. And as we do one, we do the other. The two have to balance eventually. And they also have this aspect of the masculine and feminine in each person. Not because we've got a male or female body which is often the cause, of course, for one or the other to being uh, supreme, but it is a fact that we all have both sides in us, right and left hemisphere, and the feminine part of us is usually considered to be the emotional part and the masculine, the rational, logical part. Obviously, none, neither one can stand alone. And because we so often feel that we are not... Uh, complete in ourselves which is quite true if we haven't practiced we feel so bound to find someone else to complete us but unfortunately in this case two halves don't make a whole so what we actually need to do is to complete ourselves within ourselves and have a whole there and as we have a whole we can then choose whether we want another whole or not so our our completion means that we balance we balance heart and mind and in the mind we understand and with our heart quality we experience because it's feeling so under all circumstances feeling comes first no matter how intelligent we are no matter how many degrees we might have no matter what we think about ourselves, how little we are in touch with our feelings, it doesn't matter. Whether we know it or not, it's always feeling first. And because those who are not in touch with those feelings then start with their rational mind to react to whatever (coughs) it is, they do find themselves in hot water very often. Just the opposite is true, of course, of only feeling. Why feeling is first, I will explain that very simply. If you hit your foot on a stone, it first hurts, that's a feeling. And then one can say, damn it. You can't say damn it first and then find out that it hurts. It's got to hurt first. So it's a hurt first, the feeling, the unpleasant feeling and after that which is the same here in the sitting position you first get the unpleasant feeling and then the mind says I want to get away from this so we have as our main inner life whether we know it or not doesn't matter our feeling aspect which are the experiences we make and the experiences that we make have then our feeling as a reaction to them and if we don't understand these experiences, we can have the same ones over and over again and don't grow from them. Because if there's no understanding of them, how can we grow? How can we um, ascertain whether this experience is a gross experience or whether this experience is an experience that we should not repeat because it brings us into, uh, back into our defilements? So we need to handle defilements unwholesome um, unwholesome reactions. So as we uh, experience things all the time in our daily life we also experience things in meditation and we have to absolutely know which of these experiences are worthwhile pursuing and which ones aren't. Now that is That is is why meditation, while having many methods, only has two directions, calm and insight. In Pali, Samatha and Vipassana. Maybe the word Samadhi is more familiar to you, which is the same as the word Samatha. And Vipassana means insight or wisdom, Panya. So, these are the only two directions there are. And meditation practices, which do do not lead in both directions, are not really complete. They are overburdened on one or the other aspect. There are some that go only in for the calm, which, for instance, are those that use only mantras, and when having used them and having become calm not using that calm for insight and then there are those that are using only insight constantly um, rechecking what is happening without gaining any calm we have to have both we have to have heart and mind experience calm is for the heart and insight is for the mind now in Pali Pali mind includes heart so often the words are used uh, interchangeably but in English I think we are better off if we separate them into two because we are thinking of mind as a thinking aspect and heart as a feeling aspect if we use both of them it doesn't matter which one comes first what happens is that a little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm, and a little bit of calm brings a little bit of insight. The more calm, the more insight. The more insight, we also gain more calm. However, (coughs) if it was possible for us to gain true insight with a kind of mind which we all have and carry around with us, why haven't we gained it already? Why aren't we quite wise, have no problems, are never unhappy, don't have any envy or jealousy, don't get worried or fearful? Why is that so? If the ordinary mind that we have could do it. Well, the reason is very simple. The ordinary mind that we carry around can't do it. It's very simple because the ordinary mind is too busy. The ordinary mind is busy from morning to night with one thing only, namely survival, in one manner or form. Now, survival does not only mean physical. In our society, physical survival is very simple. In other societies, in the third world, Survival is a day-long endeavor just to get enough to eat. Here, it's not like that. So, survival has another meaning for us, namely, namely ego survival. We must have ego support. We must have the affirmation that we're right, that we're clever, that we're lovable, that we're appreciated, that we are underwritten, and all the rest of the stuff that we are looking for. So this is also survival, because our ego wants to survive whether we are thinking of physical survival or not. The one may may, may not entirely in our thoughts at all. The physical survival we might take for granted, even though that's very foolish, but most people do take it for granted. Although it is a very precarious existence that we live, we could be dead any moment. Well, we don't think of it. We don't want to know about that because we don't want to know about the laws of nature. We'd rather have it our way. But the ego survival, that we're very keen on, that we have a very distinct um, feeling for. So because the mind is busy with that, it can't possibly gain insight into reality. It's too busy otherwise. But not only is it too busy, it has Discriminatory judgment in it constantly. It constantly discriminates between right and wrong, mine and yours, theirs and ours, tomorrow and yesterday, good and bad, and all these uh, dichotomies that we live with. It has a constant uh, commentary running, as you must have noticed now in your meditation. I mean, anybody who meditates knows that that it's either a commentary going on, or it's just um, thoughts at random. But the commentary that we have in our daily lives makes it impossible to get down to a, base, <coughs> uh, to a fundamental mind quality which has purity in it. Our fundamental mind quality is purity, but it's completely overlaid with thinking. And the thinking aspect has in it both, of course, wholesome and unwholesome, but because there's always discrimination and judgment, it does not allow us to look any further, any deeper. It is the same aspect that I mentioned already, namely the uh, ocean waves, which are covering us and we see only water. We don't even know a mind which doesn't have that in it if we haven't meditated to some extent for some time successfully. We don't know what it's like. We can't know something that we haven't tasted. We always use this um, simile of the mango. If somebody should ask us, "What what does a mango taste like? Somebody who's never eaten a mango, we can tell them it's sweet, it's juicy. It's delicious. It's soft. But does that person then know what a mango tastes like? Could be a peach. Doesn't have to be a mango. Could be anything. The person has to bite into the mango and then say, aha, that's a mango. So we have no idea what it's like in our daily marketplace way of thinking, what it's like to have a mind that can momentarily have Total purity, getting down to its basic existence of mind, where there's no thinking overlay, there's only experience. With that kind of mind, we can look into the depths. It's just like that placid pond or water, where we can look through the water and see what's at the bottom. We can see the sand and the coral and the fish. Here is the same thing. The mind is totally calm. There's no thinking overlay, no waves of analytical (coughs) discrimination, judgment, likes and dislikes. And having come to that, we can look below and see what there really is. Then we gain insight. And this is why we need meditation practice which gives us both opportunities to practice calm and to practice insight. Most people gain a little insight first before they approach any calm. Not everybody. It's impossible to generalize. There are people who gain calm very easily. Now, this is actually what everybody wants. That's why people come to meditation. And and so just as the Buddha said, about people who became nuns and monks in his lifetime. It doesn't really matter what the reason is why you come here. Just practice and you'll find out. It's the same. It doesn't matter any at all what the reason is you came to meditation. Just practice and you'll find out. But this is what most people are looking for. I would say almost everybody, with very, very few exceptions. They'd like to have a mind that becomes eventually peaceful, sooner better than later, where they can experience some blissful situation and that's all they want. Well, that's fine, but that's not what Buddhist meditation is all about. That is what we call calm, samatha, and certainly has to be practiced, but for one reason only. It is a means for insight and it is the absolute essential means and it is the way the Buddha taught he taught like that over and over again that you go through the calm aspect to the inside aspect but because our minds have been geared into thinking and discriminating since well even before kindergarten but surely since kindergarten and never let up Kindergarten, primary school, junior high, high school, college, university, technical school, whatever, and then a job. Think, 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 think. And it's supposed to be the best one can do. The better we think, the better we are. What utter rubbish. But since we're geared towards that, it's very hard to stop. And so it takes time. It takes a lot of time in meditation and it takes also, unfortunately, the right kind of surroundings as those people who have been in retreats for lengths of times can vouch for when they come back to the city. This calm is an essential aspect of the mind in order to see life and oneself and the universe in the way it really is, and not in the way we'd like it to be. The way we'd like it to be is to underwrite our ego, to support us, to keep us safe and secure, and not to give us any unpleasant feelings. Now, is that really possible? Is there such a thing ever happened to anyone? It just isn't realistic. It's absurd, and yet everybody wants it. So we are spending time and energy to try to get something which isn't available. If that isn't foolish, I don't know what is. The Buddha said, we are all like that. All of us. No exception. We are all in the same boat. But, he also said, we can wake up. We can wake up and see the reality. And no longer try to buck the reality. No longer try and close our eyes to the way things really are. So because we find it so difficult, as most of you will have noticed by now, to have peacefulness and calm in meditation, we need to gain a bit of insight in order to calm us down so that we can see things a little more realistically and not keep on wanting constantly something which isn't available. So in this meditation, on the breath, we have opportunities to gain insight most of the buddha's uh, meditation methods are geared towards both coming inside not all of them some are geared only towards insight but he constantly reminded the monks and nuns who were meditating in his time that the calm has to be established in order to gain the true insight. So we have a chance here to gain some insight by watching the breath and also in the walking meditation. In two primary ways, there are two uh, possible ways to gain insight into oneself, which are the basis for insight. Now, insight also has many steps. But you've got to start at the beginning somewhere. When we watch the breath, we can become very clearly aware of the fact that the body is breathing and the mind is watching. The body can't watch and the mind doesn't breathe. It's always the body breathing and the mind watching. So what do we have? We've got two. We've got mind and body and that eventually takes away this lump idea we have about ourselves this is me as long as we think this is me we are constantly concerned with ego survival and ego affirmation but once we can divide that into mind and body we can inquire into am I this body? most people will Not everybody, but most people will quite um, definitely deny that, that they are the body. Absolutely more. I must be more than this body. Don't quite know what, but something more. Well, in that case, the mind. Well, we can investigate that. But before we can investigate it, we've got to be sure that we know that there are two. The mind that's watching, the body that's breathing. Now, exactly the same in the walking meditation. Who is walking, who is watching? Body is walking, mind is paying attention. But who tells the body to walk? Mind is telling the body to walk. Mind is telling the body to stand still. This is the end of your walking path. Stand still, turn around. So again, we have a personal experience of These two aspects in Pali, nama rupa, nama the mind, rupa the body. Those two aspects of ourselves which make up this person, and we need to experience it. We don't. It's no use to say, oh yes, sure, of course. That's useless. We need to experience it because if we say, oh yes, sure, of course, we forget it the next minute. It's all gone. The experience of it means that we're putting our mind on an insight aspect. This is the very first step on insight, to know that there's ethically, eff- effectively two aspects working. They are interdependent, but they are not the same. And only when we can put our mind to good use, namely, to be totally in the moment with what the body is doing actually watching are we of a whole now that's called mindfulness and that's what we're learning in meditation in Pali it's sati s-a-t-i mindfulness mindfulness means bear attention paying attention not letting the mind wander off as it likes to do into the wild blue yonder making up either stories of hope or despair or some other kinds of ideas but being realistically grounded in that what is actually going on now this bare attention starts with attention on the body that's what we're learning here we are watching breath which is part of body We're watching the movement of foot, feet, part of body. That's the first foundation of mindfulness. Being with the mind exactly what it has told the body to do and not strain. Now the Buddha said about mindfulness a very interesting thing. With all the many things he said that we have transmitted to us, he said, the one way, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of pain, grief, and lamentation, for the final elimination of all suffering, for entering the noble path, for realizing Nibbana. That one way is mindfulness. Ekkayana, ekka is one, jnana is path. Now with that one path of mindfulness, We've got to know how to do it. Because the word mindfulness is actually not in our daily vocabulary. Whoever uses the word mindfulness unless they talk about the Buddha's teachings? I must say that I never heard the word before I heard the Buddha's teachings. It's not something that is uh, common to even, our, even uh, our thinking. If it were, we would talk about it. But since it's uncommon, we don't even know how to do it. If we did... We could stay on the breath or on the walking without any difficulty if we knew how to do it. So this aspect of insight that we can gain through these meditation practices is first mind and body and then realizing that we're practicing mindfulness of body function which is purification of beings. Why? Because one moment of concentration is one moment of purification. And purification is the whole crux of the matter. Nothing else matters. It's purification. And purification means that we let go of viewpoints and opinions and actually let the mind return to It's initial purity. So purification arises even with one second of concentration. And the more seconds we build up on top of each other, naturally the more purification there is. That's why meditation has to be practiced over and over again. And even if one is very good at it already, one needs to practice it over and over again in order to have purification. Purification means <coughs> nothing but the letting go of one's own opinions and viewpoints, and turning to the source. Now, the source is something which is at this point not in uh, need. No need to explain at this point because we need to first know how to get there. The source is certainly the place which the Buddha explained as the final elimination of all suffering. So as we purify, we do it because at the time of being totally concentrated, even if it's very short, we can have no like or dislike. We can have no dichotomy, no discrimination, no judgment, no random thinking. Nothing except concentration. And that is then the returning to the mind which has purity in it. So at that time, also, we are eliminating pain, grief, and lamentation. Because we can't do two things. We either are concentrated or we are thinking about our own problems. Or somebody else's problems. Or the problems of the world. Or whatever we happen to want to think about. So, this is then the pathway that leads us to the noble path, to the goal, which is complete purity and complete elimination of all suffering, and starts with watching the breath. That is the mindfulness of the breath, and in Pali it's called anapanasati, which means mindfulness of in-breath, out-breath that's this particular method. Now again, methods are only methods. There'll never be anything else, but we have to have a method. If we don't have a method, we are wandering around in a daze and don't know which way to go. If we use a method, one which has been tried and proven for thousands of years, we have a likelihood of gaining something. No guarantees, but it's possible. So we have the first two aspects of knowing mind and body are two, and mind is in charge. And that we're learning the mindfulness to be attentive to what's happening with the body. Now, when we stray off this mindfulness on the breath, and we start thinking, and we give it a label, we gain insight into our thinking pattern, and we gain insight into the untrained mind, the uncontrolled mind, the mind that goes off on tangents and does not see reality. It just entertains itself. And this is what the mind likes to do. It likes to entertain itself, and that's why it doesn't want to stay on the breath. It's not entertaining. It, that it become can become very peaceful, the mind hasn't experienced yet, so it's looking for entertainment. by being able to label, we gain again insight into ourselves and can use that insight to some extent in our daily lives by realizing that all our thoughts may not be true because they're certainly not always true in our meditation. So the inside path is used in this way. (coughs) The calm arises when we can actually stay on the breath. So both are being used. Not only that we get calm through staying on the breath, but to gain insight into our own thinking patterns, also into our reactions to our feelings. When the feeling of Discomfort arises in the body how we like to get away from it and how this is our common reaction to all discomforts how this is how we deal with what is called dukkha in Pali the word dukkha is such an all-encompassing word that it is difficult to translate it into English with just one word we need a lot of words So I like to stay with that Pali word dukkha and translate it as unsatisfactoriness. Everything that's not satisfactory is dukkha. So as we use our meditation practice in this way, we we have the ability, gain the ability I should say, to become calm through so staying on the breath, <coughs> to gain insight through so realizing that the way we think brings only dukkha, we can stop it, we don't have to think that way, and that there's mind and body of which mind is the master. We also have another way of realizing insight, namely, when we watch the breath how it goes in and out we can become quite aware of the fact very easily that each breath finishes and a new one starts it has to be impermanent if it isn't we'd be dead in a very short time I don't know how many minutes it takes but it's very short time and we'd be dead this impermanence on which our bodily function, our bodily life uh, depends on, should give us pause to consider whether there's anything permanent to be found. Now the same goes for the walking meditation. Everything I say about the attention on the breath goes as well for the attention on the movement of the feet because they too have to be impermanent. If they weren't, we'd stand up like this and not move, or we'd stay in one spot for the rest of our lives. We've got to have impermanence, constant change, in order to get from one place to the next, in order to even do our bodily functions, never mind the mental functions. But also with the mental functions, we can see quite clearly that one thought arises, goes away, and another one comes. None of them stay around. And we can't even remember any of them. They've all disappeared by now. We're thinking new ones. So our identification with body or mind or both are based on an illusion. Because nothing of that kind stays around for us to say this is me. The thought we've had isn't there anymore, nor... Is it possible to say that this body is a solid entity if it wasn't movable all the time? Yes. It's a perfectly normal human quality. (laughs) And not being polite is also quite normal. (laughs) So when we can watch the the, um, impermanence of the breath, it should lead us into realizing something about ourselves which we like to deny. Namely, that there's nothing solid to be found. And this is an in- inquiry and investigation which is, um, brings us insight, which eventually brings calm. Because when we see that there isn't anything we can really make permanent and say, this is it, I've got it in my hand now, then we don't worry about anything that we have to get. It's all fleeting anyway. So again, a little bit of insight brings a little bit of calm. And they're both, uh, can be practiced both in the attention on the breath or the attention on the movement of the feet. Either way, we can see the impermanence, we can see the mind being the master of the body. We can see that mindfulness means being totally with what is happening. Now another thing which I'm not going to go into in detail at this moment because it's too much information all at once you can't remember it anyway, is that mindfulness has three other foundations, not just body. And when we watch the thought and label it, we are using two others of the mind of the foundations for mindfulness. One is the knowing that the thinking has started and the other with the next one is knowing the content of the thinking and when we react or watch the reaction, not when we react, when we watch the reaction to our feelings, the unpleasant feeling that arises, we're using another foundation of mindfulness, body, feeling, thinking, content of thought, all four we're using when we watch the breath. And when we do that, more and more mindfulness will become established as a habit. Mindfulness is a mental formation of self-observation and it becomes more and more established so that eventually we can see what we really are. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O oh monks, lies in this fathom long body. One fathom long body an old-fashioned measurement and you can see the whole of the universe to be found right here in body and mind so mindfulness of those four aspects is the way of gaining insight into who we really are and what could be more interesting than finding out who we really are if we're not quite satisfied with what we've found out so far (coughs) I think I'll give you some time now to ask some questions, because I think the information is more than sufficient. Margaret. I'll tell you something tonight about um, our emotional attitudes, according to the Buddhist teaching, which are an enormous help for meditation. If we really would like to meditate successfully, which means that we become calm and at ease and uh, feel happy and have then a change of consciousness, which brings us into a different standpoint and viewpoint. We have to have our emotions in order. We have to have the emotions on the level where they are not disturbing on the contrary where they are creating a feeling of contentment within and our emotions are an extremely important aspect of ourselves even if we are unaware of them and people often do not get in touch with them very well they are an underlying cause for our speech and action and they are also an underlying cause for our disturbances now the Buddha talked about only four emotions which are worthwhile having now obviously we've got far more than that and all the others that we have if you take them under headings are usually negative ones And they're caused by our ego-assertion, by our egotistical self-centeredness. Now, we may object and say, "Well, I'm not self-centered. I'm very nice. I give people all sorts of things. Yes, quite so. But that isn't what it's all about. The egotistical self-centeredness is due to the fact that we aren't seeing things as they really are. We want this one, which we call me, to be special, protected, safe, happy, um, better, more, appreciated. We want all sorts of things for this one person. And this one person, if we take one little look, we can see how absurd that is on a tiny little planet on which there are five billion such persons. And that's just this tiny little planet and there are five billion me. And all these five billion me's all want the same thing at the expense very often of all the others that are very often surrounding and intruding. They might want the same thing. Now, obviously, there's no state of peace and harmony within that kind of emotional turmoil. We, I'm sure, all agree that we want peace. And when we hear the word peace, we immediately think of the absence of war. But that's not peace. That's a shaky agreement between nations, a piece of paper signed by the erstwhile presidents and prime ministers, totally unreliable. And we also know that. You know what peace is? Peace is a feeling within and each one of us can attain it but not at the expense of anyone else because that's a battle and battles don't produce peace although we've tried that ever since we have had humanity on this planet we've tried to have peace through war I've even seen uh, slogans written on walls in order to gain peace, make war, and such nonsense. It doesn't work. It can't work. And it can't work within ourselves either. If we want peace, we have to work at it within ourselves. And it does not include getting what one wants, and it does not include getting rid of what one doesn't want. It is a totally different aspect. The Buddhist teaching is a teaching of spirituality, which is about 180 degrees turned around from the materiality in which we live. In order to follow it, we have to do it gradually, step by step. And we have to first realize that we are lacking that totality of peace within. That we have anxiety and fear and that we have wanting, reaching out, that we have dislikes and that we have passions. We have to first know all that in order to realize that they haven't made us happy. If we haven't seen that, why should we practice? There's no reason to. If we think everything is fine, why should we practice? But once we have seen that something isn't quite the way it could be and have stopped blaming anybody else for it and are totally convinced that it's our own doing that there is no peace and harmony, from that moment on, we can practice. There's nothing to do with other people. They've got to do their own trip. They've got to find out for themselves. They've got to find out that they too haven't got peace and that they want it and that they can practice. But if we want it, we have to do it. The Buddha calls the four emotions which are worthwhile having the four Brahma Viharas. The Vihara is an abode to live in. And Brahma is a god or divine. In English, four divine abidings. Our best friends, our four best friends. If we actually practice them to the exclusion of their opposites, we can live as if we were in heaven on earth. We do not have to wait to remove ourselves from this earthly abode here. Where we live is within. We're all on the same planet, but I assure you, we all have a different living quarters within. Just as we tidy up our house in which we live, and don't leave all the dirty clothes around, and the unwashed dishes and the rubbish and the garbage because it isn't comfortable to be in a house where nothing is cleaned up just so is uncomfortable to be within this inner household that hasn't been tidied up in fact it's more uncomfortable it's better to live in a house where the dishes haven't been washed than in a house where the Emotions haven't been tidied up. It's so uncomfortable that the mind cannot really function well. The emotions that are overtaking us are making it impossible to think clearly because all we can see is the emotion. So these four in Pali, metta karuna mudita opeka. In English, the first one. We don't have an English translation. We translate metta as loving kindness, a hyphenated word not to be found in any dictionary. We've made it up. That says a lot for us. We just haven't got it. The word that we are familiar with and which is far more meaningful and impressive than loving-kindness is the word love that we can do something with. We at least, if we, if we, even if we don't feel it, we've heard about it, read about it, looked at it on the screen and have all sorts of ideas about it. fanciful <coughs> mostly and probably not terribly useful. Because what we think love is, is not what the Buddha says, is metta. When we think about love, we have this notion in our head that this is for one or two or three or four or maybe five people who are closely connected to us, mostly through family ties. And that's it. And then maybe there's a friend somewhere. Mostly it's concerned with one other person. It could be concerned with an ideal, but we are mostly concerned with one other person. <clears throat> now again, this kind of love is never satisfactory. We're always surprised why it doesn't work a hundred percent. The only thing that's wrong is a surprise. It can't work. Because it has fear embedded in it. The fear which is equal to hate. Fear is equal to hate because we can only fear what we don't like, not what we love. It's not that we have hate for the other person. What we hate is the idea, the inner knowledge and certainty, that this isn't going to last. Because nothing lasts. Everything changes and there is that inner uncertainty there's this little niggling voice I've got to be right I've got to be lovable I've got to do it well otherwise this is going to collapse and if it collapses then love has collapsed it's the greatest absurdity there is because how can love collapse because one single person out of five billion has changed their feelings. We ourselves change our feelings all the time. And this change of feelings is known to us about ourselves. We cannot hold on to any feeling. It's constantly a constant change, a constant impermanence. So it is with everybody else. That doesn't mean people can't stay together. But this underlying notion of anxiety that is there precludes the total fulfillment. The Buddha had an entirely different viewpoint, an entirely different experience of love. The love that he talks about is unconditional, has nothing to do with another person, has nothing to do whether the other person that is there is lovable, available, present, loves one back, wants to be loved, or any other condition. It is strictly a development of one's own heart. The quality of one's heart needs to be developed. And when one develops the quality of one's own heart, then the lovingness goes out to whoever is there it has absolutely not, nothing to do with the fact whether the other person is truly lovable because if we really examine this we will find nobody is truly lovable including ourselves only the Arahant are fully enlightened and as I said before there aren't any in Australia so we might as well stop looking looking for perfection is bound to be disappointing and because we haven't really seen ourselves properly we can't see others properly either so the love that we would like to get is also an absurdity because if we get it it's the other person's feelings that we may be able to reciprocate well that is possible. The only thing that matters is the love that we can give. If we want to feel love, and just think about that for a moment, we've got to have it, not get it. We want to feel love in here, it's got to be generated in here. That's where we feel it. If somebody else is loving us, What do we get? Ego support. Oh, look at this, I'm so lovable. Isn't it great? Not only one loves me, two love me, three maybe. That's nothing. There's nothing in it. But in here, this is where love is felt and this is where we have to generate it. And the more we generate it, To more and more living beings the more love we feel it is so simple and so obvious and such a truism and the whole world operates on the opposite one can hardly believe it that such a simple premise should make people give people so much difficulty The reason it gives so much difficulty is because of our ego-centeredness. We want to be supported, emotionally supported by being loved by others. But it doesn't work, does it? It never has and never will. Oh, for a moment it does. But it does leave, if there's nothing in here, it's empty. And it always carries with it the understanding that if it's depending upon one person it may finish any time. Although none of us like to think of death we are not foolish enough to believe that we're not going to die. We'd like to push it off and say well later, later, I'm not ready. But that too is foolishness. Any moment Who knows, a drunk driver, a bit of cement of a building, anything and we're finished. That's why we've got to do it now and not later and not wait for someone else to do it. We want to feel peace, harmony and fulfillment within, we've got to generate it. Most people don't. This whole planet lacks love and compassion. That's why we see so much difficulty amongst people, not just in a shooting war. People fight in their families. They fight in their associations, in their clubs. They fight uh, with their employees. People (coughs) fight everywhere. If they don't have a shooting match, they might have a shouting match. Anything. What is the lacking? Love. If we have feelings of love, then we realize that that's all that's necessary in order to get along. Now, these feelings of love cannot be generated just by wanting to. We've got to work at it. First, we've got to see that it's entirely up to us, that it's not somebody else's duty to love us. It's our duty to love others. But we also have to start at the center, and that's ourselves. We've got to love ourselves. If we have a feeling of inadequacy, which is also an ego trip, by the way, just when we have a feeling of superiority, they both ego trips. If <coughs> we have either one of those, we will find it very difficult to love ourselves. If we have a feeling of being cheated by others, if others are, um, we feel threatened by others, all that makes it difficult to love ourselves properly. The way we can overcome it is to think of ourselves as our own mother and our own child. We have both qualities within we are utterly childish otherwise we wouldn't do all these absurd things trying to find somebody to love us instead of loving others but we also have the wisdom of a mother we have both and a mother loves a child no matter how extraordinary stupid it is it doesn't matter so if we can do that love ourselves with the love of a mother trying to inject some wisdom from that in us which has that wisdom and still love ourselves for all the mistakes we make, we've got an excellent beginning. And then we can look at other people as if they were our own children. Now, if we have children, we can very easily see that the difference of our feelings for our own children to other people is enormous. In fact, in some cases, it's so enormous as if the rest of the world doesn't exist. They're just faces and bodies, and it doesn't matter who they are. This is very, very common. And yet the Buddha said, all the people we meet in this lifetime could very well have been our children in the past. So, who knows? It doesn't matter. This conjecture. But why... Can't we try and to be and have these feelings that we (coughs) learn from having children or that we learn from being children? We may have an idea what our parents feel for us. And if we can use these feelings as a seedbed, at least to get an idea what it feels like to be there for others, we can then expand upon that and make it um, go further and wider where it is no longer conditioned by having a certain (coughs) person around. Now parents are also, because of their strong attachment to the children, have also not just pure love, but also the fear that the children will not measure up to their expectations. So again, there's no peacefulness in that. We have to learn that we can love without expectation. And we can reinforce that in ourselves over and over again. Any kind of love that we know in the family can be a seedbed for that. The far enemy of love is obviously hate. There's nothing difficult about that. But the near enemy of love is affection because affection breeds attachment and attachment makes it impossible to move if I'm attached to this seat here I can never move again I'm stuck if we're attached we're stuck the stronger we're attached the stronger we're glued on nowhere to go Heart in one place and hardens up and contains more and more expectation of being satisfied through the behavior of those we love and as we want to be satisfied through somebody else's behavior we're asking for trouble obviously we can't even control our own behavior never mind somebody else's so we're asking for (coughs) the obvious difficulties which everybody has and it's so easily averted all we have to do is turn ourselves around and say this doesn't work I'll do it the other way around I'll start loving without expecting now the first thing that we can do in that respect is to do loving-kindness meditation but that's only one very little step as we have been doing here every day after the meditation we'll do again tonight but it's nothing if it isn't reinforced it's just empty words maybe thoughts it's got to be the feeling there's no feeling with it (coughs) it doesn't work so what this loving kindness meditation is meant to do it's meant to direct the mind in the right direction. That's all it can do. It cannot immediately generate the feelings. Eventually it can, if we do it sincerely and often enough. But initially what it does, it just gives the mind a direction. And then we have to reinforce this in our behavior from morning to night. Now obviously, once in a while we may fall down on that. But if we reinforce it in our behavior over and over again specifically to those whom we don't like, we will eventually come to a point where the heart quality remains even. It is a matter of overcoming our instinctive reaction to that which is unpleasant. Just as overcoming the instinctive reaction to the unpleasant sensation when sitting. It's one and the same thing. Instinct and impulse are our two enemies. And they bring us into difficulties over and over again. Even if we don't say anything, if we don't do anything, we've got inner difficulties. If we say something and do something, we may even have outer difficulties. Instinct and impulse are human qualities. The Buddha's teaching shows us the way to transcend them. If we don't transcend these human qualities of instinct and impulse, we're going to have problem after problem that don't get solved. There's no way to solve our problems if we get (coughs) angry by being in a (coughs) soundproof room and hitting mattresses. It's a momentary release, but the anger arises again and again. Buddha compared anger to picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody. We may even hit the target. The other person might also get angry. But who gets burned first? Who picks up the hot coals with their bare hands and gets burned first? Obviously the one who's angry. And if we do this, Over and over again, either expressed anger or just knowing the anger or even acting upon it, whichever way. It is like driving a truck over a wet driveway again and again, making such deep ruts that in the end we need a forklift to get that truck out of those ruts. That's what we do with our mind. The more often we have anger and dislike, fury and vehemence, <coughs> grasping and craving, the more the mind gets in those ruts. That's why we need to reinforce our, the opposite of that and our understanding of the spiritual teaching reinforce it again and again in our mind so that those occasions become less and less and that those ruts then smooth out and in the end there's nothing but harmonious evenness the loving-kindness meditation is the first aspect now reinforcing that in our lives deliberately trying to Be helpful to others, not for one's own benefit materially, but for one's own benefit emotionally. Trying to be helpful and loving. And if we have people that we don't like, to go out of our way to try and find some lovable quality in them, so that we can eventually let go of all dislike. (coughs) We don't hurt those people. We may, they may get angry then we have actually created more bad karma but we may not do anything to them but we're certainly doing something to ourselves. It is about the worst thing we can do to ourselves and we're all guilty of that. We don't take care of our heart quality. We wait for somebody who's lovable. Sometimes we may have to wait a long time. Maybe we can't find anybody. Maybe we are dreaming of some impossible idea. Maybe we are so keen on getting what we want that we forget that we're all guests here. This is a guest performance, a very short one. Even when we live to be 80, what is that in the scheme of the universe? Most people don't even make it to 80. What is that? The shortest possible guest performance one can think of. We have an idea that in those few years that we're here, we need to get things. We need to keep them. We need to have them. And very often at the expense of our own happiness and at the expense of the happiness of others. Is that worth it? We need to really investigate. This is mindfulness. Mindfulness needs to precede all that. Because otherwise we will react with instinct. Mindfulness is like a brake on a car. If we drive a car without brakes, it's potential suicide. If we live life without mindfulness, it's potential emotional suicide. If we come to a dangerous corner and we are a halfway decent driver, we will brake, step on the brake before we get into that curve. <coughs> and as we step on the brake, we have time to change the direction, change the steering wheel. The same is with mindfulness. If we see danger arising, the danger of getting angry, uh, the danger of um, becoming um, upset, fearful, anxious, the danger of becoming grasping, we step on the brake of mindfulness, which gives us time to reconsider whether it's worth it. And as we reconsider, we are able to change our direction. Once overcome, overcoming a negative reaction and changing it to a positive one, gives us the self-confidence that we can do it again. Sometimes we may fall down on the job, why not? Mistakes are there to be made but we've got to know it's a mistake we must stop justifying there is no justification for not loving there's only the inability to do it and once we realize that we will try a little harder and once having been able to actually overcome the instinct of the negative reaction of being angry and uh, discourteous or impolite to somebody and changing it even though there may have been every justification under ordinary circumstances we will feel very safe and secure within ourselves that no matter what happens we'll be able to look after our reactions it's not suppression the Buddha compared that to A chariot driver who is able to stop the wild horses when they have already started to run off with the chariot. He said, that's what I call a real chariot driver, one who can stop the wild horses in mid-flight. So when it's already arisen to then say, no, wait a minute, that isn't going to come to anything. This will be a dangerous thing to do. This is making bad karma. And then to stop oneself. Now the ideal thing is to watch it arising and ceasing. That takes a fair bit of practice. In the beginning it's much easier to watch the arising of the negativity and change it, to substitute. Now in meditation, and that's why without meditation Most people will never be able to do it. In meditation, we learn the substitution. Excuse me, I've got to sneeze. (coughs) Excuse me. We substitute the thought, the distracting thought, with the attention on the breath. Now that substitution needs to be learned enough in meditation so that we can do that in daily living we realize the negativity and we substitute now we may have to give ourselves a pep talk that's quite all right whatever it takes doesn't matter we may have to think of any of the good things we know about the same person that we're getting angry at we may have to think of the Other people who do like that person even though I myself might not like that person but other people like it, like that person. Uh, We may have to think of the bad karma we are making by becoming angry or negative. We may have to think of the bad reputation we get. All these thoughts need to come through our mind and it may take time till we are able to substitute In the beginning, we may not be able to substitute dislike with love, but it's not that difficult to substitute dislike with compassion if we've had a look at ourselves. Self-observation is the hub of the wheel of any spiritual path. If we don't learn about ourselves, there's nothing we can change. So compassion means that we have already seen that we ourselves have a lot of Dukkha that we ourselves have a lot of unhappiness, unsatisfactoriness that we are not totally fulfilled and from that we realize everybody is exactly the same we are all exactly the same we've got the same bodies and the same minds, the differences are minute In fact, if we go to a different culture, they very often can't tell us apart, and we can't tell them apart. We look exactly the same to them, even though we ourselves see lots of differences. The differences are minute. So all that uh, unsatisfactoriness, the non-fulfillment that we feel, the lack of love that we feel, everybody else has it too it's a universal problem, it's not an individual problem so if somebody is unpleasant yelling, shouting, making a fuss about things, whatever we can be quite sure that that person is unhappy a happy person doesn't make a fuss a happy person is happy and radiates happiness But an unhappy person radiates whatever dislike has arisen. So if somebody does that and we immediately start disliking that person, we can look at it and say, well, that person is unhappy and compassion may arise. Compassion has as its far enemy, cruelty is easy to see, but as its near enemy, it's pity. And that's interesting because it's so similar. That's why it's difficult to see the differences. Pity is a feeling where we say we're very sorry for the other person, but we separate ourselves. We're sorry it's happening to somebody else and quite honestly, we're glad it's not happening to us. But compassion is totally different. Compassion means with feeling. Com is with, passion is strong feeling empathy it arises because one has already understood oneself one has already lived through a fair bit of all the different kinds of dukkha which are available to us in this world and has found a way out and then another person having this some sort of dukkha whether it's the same or different doesn't matter the reaction is unhappiness we can have a feeling of being with that person, no separation. And again, meditation is our great assistant because in meditation we can have experiences which we call totality experiences which are not so difficult to come by where one doesn't feel separated from anything, one is part of everything don't think that this is an enlightenment experience, it is a totality experience where one has a feeling of being part of all people that exist, all nature that is around, no separation one can of course do that intellectually but it doesn't have the same effect when it becomes a feeling it does have an effect and when that arises through the meditation it's easy to love and have compassion because there is nobody different from myself if I have compassion with myself I have compassion with everybody if I have love for myself I have love for everybody no difficulty at all and in reality this separation that we live with is an optical illusion we trust our senses and they're so, so very little capable of giving us an exact picture of the world. And still we believe in them. Bees can see ultraviolet light. We can't. And bees are not as highly developed as we are. Dogs can hear sounds which we can't hear we live under the optical illusion that we're all separate and yet scientists about 15 years ago made experiments in what they called a bubble chamber in America and found out that there is not a single solid building block in the whole of the universe everything that exists are energy particles coming together and falling apart so fast that they give one the illusion of solidity. The Buddha said that two and a half thousand years ago, not exactly in those same words. And the only difference is and was that these scientists did not include themselves into those energy particles. If they had, (coughs) they might have become enlightened. The Buddha saw it in himself and therefore was enlightened. Now the actual truth is, that we have that idea that these energy particles of which we consist are somebody else. But in reality, it's just a mass of matter. That's all it is. There is nothing except mind and matter in the whole universe. So why we should have any kind of dislike for somebody else and should have any kind of separation, alienation or threat by somebody else Is another aberration. Now just because this is so isn't going to make a slightest bit of difference to anybody. Nobody took any notice of this that they did these uh, bubble chamber experiments. Everybody still has their same likes and dislikes that they've always had. But if we really want to improve the quality of our life, we have to improve the quality of our emotions because that's what we live by. And if we want to improve the quality of our emotions, we have to work at it. It doesn't come by itself. But if we start working at it, we will have results almost immediately. And we will see those results. And by seeing them in ourselves, seeing them, we will find that this is really working. But it must not be hypocrisy. We mustn't pretend. That too is not uncommon. People who pretend to love everybody pretend to see only the rosy side of things. That isn't so. If we start loving, it doesn't mean that we lose our discrimination between good and bad. We know exactly what's good and bad, but we don't hate it. I like to compare that to a mother who has just cleaned up her kitchen floor and polished it, and then the three-year-old comes in with a milk bottle and drops the whole thing on the floor. Well, obviously the mother isn't going to like that act. Got to clean it all up again. But is she going to start hating the child? Obviously she's going to love the child just as much as she always did. Even though the action that was perpetrated by the child was not very desirable. This is exactly what happens in our lives. We can love without losing our discriminator, discriminatory uh, quality. So if we don't know any more what's good and bad, we wouldn't know what to do either. But if we know that the quality of our life is enhanced because we have been able to cultivate that heart quality within us, which is loving and compassionate and has to start within ourselves, for ourselves, then we will see the uh, effectiveness of the Buddhist teaching how effective it becomes if one actually practices it as long as it's in books or in talks it's an inter- interesting intellectual exercise one may even believe in it but it doesn't do a thing it's got to be practiced from the ground up moment after moment day after day the Buddha compared it To going into the ocean, first as one goes into the ocean, one only gets one's feet wet because it's a very gradual slope. Then one goes up.